what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. That's kind of weird. Uh, Like, I don't know, giving a tour of my apartment, there's... Oh my god. John, it's your whole apartment. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, what are you referring to exactly? (laughs) The Warhammerage is all of your apartment. Or wait, is it not? No, well, some of them are Transformers and some of them are Power Rangers. But anyways, um, yes, they're kind of strewn all over the place. I've just walked into the apartment of someone whose name you have probably heard in the Doc Project credits. Senior writer of CBC Radio Digital, Jonathan Orr. Whole bunch of junk in my apartment, so I apologize. One of my J-school friends used the phrase, like, bachelor squalor, which it was more for my friend's basement apartment, but I feel like I still have that here. I don't know about squalor, exactly. John's apartment is not so much an apartment as a workshop meets museum. There are walls and display cases filled with figurines, most of them painted by John himself at a paint-splattered desk under two bright lamps. This is my universe, for the most part, for the hobby, right? It's a very solitary thing, but it's kind of like your own creator's desk, Um, you know, in the same way that a lot of writers have their desk, their workspace. So, yeah, um, there's just a rough bit of cardboard there to make sure everything stays clean. There's paints, there's some paint pots, one of which is like a Tostitos jar. Um, (laughs) And, you you know, you, you work with what you got. Like my paint palette... Some people have a nice palette. This is literally just like the lid of a Parmesan cheese tub. Looks like it does the trick, though. Yeah, I mean, I I should probably get a wet palette, which like preserves the life of the paint better. But I mean, like, I feel like I'm not as like ferocious a painter as like some other hobbyists are. Like, I'm not pumping out an army every month. An army. These miniatures John paints and displays, the vast majority of them are for the game Warhammer. Warhammer Fantasy Battles and Warhammer 40,000 are tabletop war games created by the company Games Workshop in the 1980s in England. Players bring their armies of roughly one and a half inch figures, about the size of a chess piece or a thumb, onto a tabletop decorated with terrain, which can be anything from wizard towers to blasted cityscapes. And then their armies battle it out with measuring sticks, data sheets, and a whole lot of dice rolls. Think of Warhammer as a bit like Dungeons & Dragons meets chess meets Risk meets an Excel spreadsheet. And part of the fun is that you actually assemble and paint these tiny figures yourself. That's John's favorite part. He shows me to a shelf with 30 or so tiny, highly detailed, tough guys. These are mainly the guys that have been painting for the last year and a half or so. Uh, They are... Like, it's kind of a everyman's army. It's the Blood Angel Space Marines. Oh, yeah, your average Blood Angel. Yeah, well, I mean, like, these were the poster boys of Warhammer back when I started. Like, um, they have a lot of cool history. They have big guns. They have chain swords, as you can see, like the signature weapon of uh, of Warhammer 40,000. Warhammer is full of terms like this. Space Marines, Blood Angels, Chain Swords. 
Some of the game's vocabulary has even wormed its way into the wider lexicon. Like, have you ever heard the term grimdark? That term now encapsulates an entire subgenre of fiction with a tone, style, or setting that is especially dystopian. And it got its name from Warhammer. Like, I used to paint, like, the space wolves because they were basically, like, space Klingons. Um, that's redundant. All Klingons are space Klingons. Um, but, the, like, they were painted in, like, this very um, complex gradient blue-gray. Which John is a Warhammer hobbyist, player, fanatic, maybe. Though he'd be the first to say there are people, lots of people, way more into this hobby than he is. In 2017, Games Workshop, the parent company of Warhammer, was recognized in the UK as the top-performing publicly traded British stock and now carries a market capitalization of more than 5 billion Canadian dollars, which makes Warhammer possibly the most popular game you've never played. Unless you have, in which case, you likely know all this. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Hobby fandoms, like Warhammer, create entire worlds which can become microcosms for the world we all live in. So, as this game and its fandom has grown exponentially, it has become a microcosm of some of the uglier conflicts society has seen in recent years, with clashing ideologies playing out in real life and online. Today, John sets out on a journey to reveal the surprising political history of one of the most popular and yet underreported games of our time, and to figure out his place in a fandom that is increasingly torn apart. Jonathan will take it from here. I was in grade six or seven when my cousin showed me a booklet he got from the Games Workshop. It was full of brightly colored pages and painted miniatures from their two flagship games, Warhammer Fantasy Battles and Warhammer 40,000. I was immediately entranced. There were heroes and monsters, space marines versus aliens. It was catnip for someone like me obsessed with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. I gravitated towards the sci-fi game Warhammer 40,000 set in the year 40,000, shorthanded as a 40k. My uncle owns a comic book store in the West End of Toronto. Within the next year or so, around 1997-98, he began selling some Warhammer kits. Throughout high school, it became a local haunt for myself and a small group of friends. My high school had a strong sports and jock culture and was overwhelmingly white and wealthy. But my uncle's store was a safe haven for Asian nerds like me. We'd take our armies of tiny soldiers and wage war inside a dingy room with zero ventilation on top of lopsided mahjong tables. So, how would you have described me back then? What do you remember of myself? <laughs> so, John, I remember you as being pretty quiet. You always had sort of like a drier sense of humor and could be a little sarcastic, but we all could be. We were teenagers. Yeah. Uh, this is Scott Baker, one of the regulars. But, uh, for the most part, I just remember you as, uh, as being, yeah, just like a, just a quiet, like thoughtful guy, you know, decent guy. You can say stuff that are not just compliments. That's totally fine. 
I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a bad thing to say about you. Um, yeah, I think like I appreciated that, you know, you usually had like a, like a painted forest, like you had, you know, obviously like a dedication and attention to detail that I didn't. Scott and I still keep in touch from time to time talking about Warhammer, but also about video games, TV, politics. We, I think, like would never have really met or, or talked without the, the entry point of the game. Or one, one thing that was appealing about it was just like, you know, there was people you hadn't met and, and different perspectives and that kind of thing. But we all had, you know, shared interests, obviously. You know, you don't spend your weekends socializing in a comic book store because you have something better to do. <laughs> so I think yeah. for I, us, I, we were that sort of like band of comic book guys, you know, and there was, there was like a commonality there that in a time where, where high school could feel like a little bit frustrating or a little bit alienating in, in ways for people, you could sort of understand like later on in life, adults find their bars or their clubs or what have you. And, and the comic book store was really like that kind of place for, for us as kids. I was always more interested in painting the miniatures than playing the game. There's nothing quite like looking at a complete hand-painted group of miniatures, each scarcely larger than a chess piece. It's like woodworking, only geekier. The game has its own appeal, of course. It requires a sharp tactical mind and lots and lots of dice. Looking back, maybe just because I wasn't a very good player in general, but... Like, the running joke was that my dice-rolling luck was maybe the worst out of any of the regular players. Yes, I remember that. It was. <laughs> yeah. Hands down. I also loved devouring the lore and background, studying the source books. To be a man in such times is to be one amongst untold billions. It is to live in the cruelest and most bloody regime imaginable. These are the tales of those times. This is the famous intro at the beginning of the original Warhammer 40,000 rulebook, released in 1987. Forget the power of technology and science, for so much has been forgotten, never to be relearned. Forget the promise of progress and understanding, for in the grim, dark future, there is only war. There is no peace amongst the stars, only an eternity of carnage and slaughter, and the laughter of thirsting gods. But the universe is a big place, and whatever happens, you will not be missed. Warhammer 40,000 is set in the far future of the 41st millennium. It's a dystopian universe of unimaginable proportions. Humans have colonized a million worlds across the galaxy, forming the Imperium of Mankind, and it's on the brink of collapse. On Earth, the Imperium is ruled by the bickering bureaucratic High Lords of Terra, but above all, humans worship the Imperium's founder, the Emperor, who's been dead for 10,000 years. Or sort of. Yeah, um, my name's Ian Williams. Um, I'm a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm a former journalist. Um, I do research on uh, the intersection of uh, craft communities and mass production. If anyone can explain the role of the Emperor, Ian can. And heads up, the Emperor is going to sound really weird and kind of creepy, but we're going to need to understand his significance later. 
he was the super powerful human who was betrayed by his uh, kind of adopted son and killed, and they keep him uh, kind of half dead, half alive in what's called the Golden Throne. And in order to keep him alive, they basically commits mass human sacrifice to him. And in exchange, he becomes what's called a psychic beacon, so that way uh, the ships of the Imperium know how to navigate the galaxy. Uh, but an entire religion crops up in the wake of his death, and it compounds over the 10,000 years that he's been alive dead in his golden throne. So mass human sacrifice, a galaxy engulfed in war, in short, it's a bad time. But it can also be a lot of fun. All right, now I have this dude. He has a gigantic gold banner. So I'm gonna get my shade wash. I'd paint and play throughout high school and university at no small expense to myself and my parents, thanks to the high price of the miniatures. My first squad of 10 Space Marines were $45 in 1998. Eventually, the members of our gaming group went to grad school, got jobs, got married or started families, moved out of the city. In short, like so many things from that period of my life, I drifted away from it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to apply that dark brown wash over the bright gold all over. I've dipped into painting here and there over the years for a few weeks at a time, but never kept the momentum. Until about three years ago, during a visit to my parents' house, where I grew up. I found several boxes of unassembled, unpainted miniatures, a couple hundred dollars worth. They were all from the same army, the Space Marines, of course. It felt like a single, major project that I could potentially finish. So I lugged the boxes to my apartment, dusted off my painting table, and got to work. And... That's maybe the easiest step in painting that does the most. Everything now has shadows, it's a richer shade of brown gold. And I'll do that on the gold helmet too. 2020 was the perfect time for me to ramp up painting. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, everyone was looking for new hobbies to pass the time indoors. I returned to an old one. It was a mental and emotional salve for everything else happening around the world especially during the early months when everyone was locked down and inside. After a long day of working in news and current affairs, often dealing with traumatic and emotionally taxing stories, I could sit down at a different desk, swish a paintbrush in a jar of water, and sling some paint around. Games Workshop, the creators of Warhammer, was founded by three guys in Nottingham, England in 1978. They started by selling handmade wooden board games like Backgammon. Soon, Games Workshop became the UK importer of a new American game called Dungeons and Dragons. In 1979, they began producing metal miniatures to use in games like D&D. Soon after, they began developing their own games. Warhammer Fantasy Battles and its sci-fi counterpart Warhammer 40,000, originally known as Rogue Trader. And it took off. By the 90s, Games Workshop had its own retail stores selling its games, miniatures, paints, and hobby supplies around the world. That's when its popularity began to really grow. Their stores in bright red carpets and walls, and tables covered in beautifully painted models. 
a great attraction for kids and young adults alike. Ian Williams, the PhD student we met a minute ago, discovered the hobby slightly before its meteoric rise. He's been playing miniature games for more than three decades. So I started playing in probably 1988 or 89. My brother and I, when we were kids, we would play Dungeons and Dragons. And my mother is an expat who lives in England, and she didn't really know what she was doing, but she would send us issues of White Dwarf. White Dwarf is Games Workshop's trade magazine. Every month it would include new stories, scenarios, and a catalog of new miniatures you can buy. And she sent us one, which was right when they had turned the orcs in uh, first edition 40K into basically like football hooligans. Um, And we were just completely hooked. Like we were just fascinated. We were like, whoa, what do you mean? You have like a bunch of miniatures and you fight battles and you paint them and you can chop them up and reassemble them into new forms. So yeah, we went completely nuts from then. It was a clever formula, mixing evocative storytelling and world building with a business model that recommended you buy more miniatures every month. Every month it was almost like getting a new gaming book. Over the years, the Games Workshop brand has grown exponentially to include dozens of video games, fan-made web series, an entire book publishing arm, and licensed Marvel comic books in addition to the tabletop offerings. Miniatures and the games to play with them continued to be the core of the business, which is still run centrally from Nottingham, England. This past year has been especially successful, with online sales growing by 90%. This despite most Games Workshop stores around the world being locked down because of the pandemic. It seems that not being able to actually play the games themselves hasn't slowed down people's interest in the hobby. And I'll do that on the gold helmet too. Most of his armor is bright red with black and gray robes. So the gold will really stand out. This is gonna be a part of the command group for my army. As I slowly painted through the models I had, draping the gray plastic of space marines with the bright red of the blood angels, It slowly dawned on me how differently this hobby was playing out for me now than when I was a teenager. Back then, my whole weekend social circle was based around Warhammer. Even if I was, and probably still am, really bad at the game itself, these were my people. They were my friends. There are few greater feelings than unveiling an entire painted army ready for the battlefield, impressing newcomers with your artistic skills. But since I was in the midst of the pandemic, I couldn't exactly go to a gaming store and meet other Warhammer players. But something else had changed since I was a teenager. The game, like so much of our lives, had moved online. As I started getting more into the game and looking for active Warhammer message boards, I also found 40k images showing up in some unusual places. The image I saw the most was of the Emperor, You know, that creepy character Ian was explaining earlier? The one who is kept alive through human sacrifice? Yeah, him. But in the pictures I found, people were photoshopping the Emperor, replacing his head with that of Donald Trump. In a way, I wasn't surprised. There were always some players who loved being edgy and borderline offensive, especially online. But this took it farther than I ever remembered it being when I was a teenager. And it gave me pause, gnawing at that feeling of comfort I got from rediscovering the game. 
I later learned that the Trump as Emperor pictures rose to popularity in 2016, as Trump himself was ramping up his presidential campaign in the US. That was before I'd gotten back into the hobby, so I'd missed them back then. But digging into the history now, I found they were most prominent on a Reddit subforum called The Donald. Some users actually began referring to Trump as their God Emperor. The Donald was routinely filled with Nazi imagery and racist and anti-Semitic language. When Reddit banned it for harassment and hate speech in June 2020, some supporters gravitated to another subreddit called Donald Trump. The US Capitol overrun, under siege, pro-Trump extremists storming inside, flooding the halls, breaching the floor of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Reddit eventually also banned this subreddit just two days after the Capitol Hill insurrection, following claims its members glorified and incited the violence. But these attitudes weren't limited to some largely anonymous subreddits. You're referring to Trump, we'll get to I'm referring to, to the God Emperor. To Trump, it is. The there. God Emperor and his right. incoming Trumpenreich. That's Milo Yiannopoulos, a far-right commentator, referring to Trump as the God Emperor on The Rubin Report, a right-wing show on YouTube, from early 2016. This might not be surprising, that some people playing a war game were egging on real-life violence in the US, but it was ironic to me, and here's why. Warhammer's lore is steeped in British political satire. So, how did we get here? The game was originally imagined as tongue-in-cheek commentary on fascism and nationalism, not as tabletop propaganda for those things. And it was drenched in wry humor. When Ian Williams started playing, he was struck that 40k's version of the orcs were basically rowdier versions of football hooligans. It's so British. Uh, it's, it's such a British take on... Uh and a modern kind of like punk rock British take on, on fantasy that I'd never really encountered. Kieran Gillen was immersed in that British context when he was growing up. I'm Kieran Gillen. I'm a writer based in London. Um, I'm primarily a comics writer, but relevantly, I wrote the Marnius Calgar comic, uh, which was the first comic that Marvel put out as their uh, licensed from Games Workshop. Kieran found his way to the hobby. As a, a very young geek in the mid-80s. It was the same for me, just in the 90s. But while for me it was a natural extension of my interest in comic books and video games, Kieran had other things going on. I was a teenage metalhead, and there's a fascinating crossover between the culture that birthed uh, Games Workshop. You know, this is like hippie London culture, this is like metalhead uh, Midlander culture. The English Midlands, where Games Workshop got its start in the 80s, were the center for bands like Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Led Zeppelin. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister at the time. You do, you get new jobs by someone who knows the marketplace. Her policies emphasized free markets, cuts to government spending, and the marginalization of labor unions, which hit hard in manufacturing towns in the Midlands. And it was as a kind of black clad teenager this was a wonderful cynical um darkly humorous aesthetic response to factorism 
that's the other aspect. You've got to take it from these are fundamentally British, primarily working class uh, and lower middle class designers and people reacting to the complete collapse. Oh, there's no hope. It's Britain, <laughs> you know, uh, and that kind of universe where literally no one is a good guy. That's the kind of the, the awfulness of 40k is uh, that it is based on the idea that even the people who are the protagonists are certainly not the heroes. Ian was in his 30s and living in North Carolina when this was happening, but he remembers this all too. Um, it was still mostly made by white dudes, but these were white punk rockers and heavy metal heads who had a deep distrust of Margaret Thatcher and um, were not keen on the white nationalist uh, undercurrents of British conservatism at the time. But as Warhammer grew in popularity and its audience reached beyond the UK, things slowly began to change. A really strange thing happens as Games Workshop uh, goes public in 1993-1994 um, and becomes more corporate, which is that they find that by stripping away some of that uh, ambiguity, uh, some of those uh, really legitimately interesting questions that made them popular in the first place, they find very quickly that they can sell more miniatures, and this is borne out, if they just make the Space Marines the good guys. The Space Marines are the Imperium's elite super soldiers, bioengineered killing machines with cool guns and colorful armor. They are Games Workshop's best-selling miniatures by far. And slowly, year by year, that ambiguity, that lampooning of authority is stripped away. And the Space Marines become what you think of now who are good guys. Now the problem is, is that they're still fascist, right? They still are the, the base universe where you have a god emperor and a fascist, uh, a fascist regime, uh, that's still present. Um, and they never address the fact that the Space Marines are now suddenly more, more overtly the good guys. So, functionally, it becomes kind of a, uh, a, a matter of political economy for Games Workshop. They go with what sells, and they go with what's easy. So, how did we get from Brit-punk anti-Thatcherism to Donald Trump the Emperor? Games Workshop's evocative universes with their larger-than-life characters were primarily aimed at nerdy teenage boys, like I was. But over the years, it also attracted others with a different outlook than myself and my friends would have. This is my old friend Scott. We all know stories of people that, you know, have painted up their armies and the, the like, symbol they're using. Um, or their particular color scheme is actually inspired by reminiscent of Nazi forces um, or things like that. But I think, you know, if you're not a, if you're not a historical war gamer or someone with interest in that, like, you know, I could have played someone who painted up his Marines to be Nazis and never known. And then you think about um, the setting itself, you know, and the, the fascist totalitarianism and the sort of like gruesome aspects of the, the way the backstories of these, um, these forces come into play. Like there's lots of areas there that can like attract people that you don't really want to know, <laughs> right? As Ian explains, this came in part because of Games Workshop's success. In some instances, and I think in Warhammer, it represents uh, kind of a devolvement 
um, and a stripping of that context. Like a 16-year-old who's getting into Warhammer for the first time has no real way of understanding what Warhammer was. And even if that 16-year-old reads that stuff, there's just no way of fully getting the context and every single clue in there about politics, right? About about very deeply British politics, particularly if they're an American, Canadian, they're not going to pick up on all of that. So that context in any circumstance is going to be stripped away. And whenever context is stripped away, it can be filled, right? And Games Workshop has done a very good job of kind of aiding and abetting that, right? But it's also not entirely their fault. In, in other words, Warhammer could be the exact same. They could have changed nothing. And there would still be a rapid decontextualization after 40 years of, 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 of what the game was and what it was trying to say uh, politically. And in that vacuum, uh, I don't know how you would be able to prevent kind of right-wing elements picking it up and going, hey, look, it's, you know, it's, it's fascist and this is cool, right? Then Ian says something that gets to the heart of the issue and to my own conflicted feelings about the hobby. And it is cool, right? If it wasn't cool, it wouldn't be something that we picked up on when we were kids, which is maybe a, a, you know, a, a parallel question, right? Which is that it is those ambiguities and it is the way that it toyed with fascist aesthetics, both lampooning it and presenting it as cool, right? It can be both. It can be a thing where we go, ooh, I don't know about that. And also, oh yeah, the space marine is really cool. It's true, though I'd never thought about it quite that way before. In 2020, several wargaming groups signed an open letter asking Games Workshop for greater representation and more inclusivity in the games, and the community at large. The letter requested the company outline plans to tackle racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of prejudice. They cited how a black player experienced racist comments from a Games Workshop staff member. And news outlets reporting on the letter also described how a YouTuber who imagined a space marine as gay received death threats. The open letter went on to describe how when these types of complaints are made publicly, players can expect backlash, and asked the company to lead by example, condemning attacks. But what Ian is getting at is that the company's marketing strategy may be inadvertently feeding this far-right sentiment in the community. That encouraging a narrative of good guys versus bad guys creates a troublingly simplified reading of a game in which there are no good guys. I also asked Kieran, the comic book author, about this. Art and aesthetics decontextualized can be applied to anything. That image with uh, Trump's head on top of the Emperor's body. Like, the point of Warmer 40k is that guy has been reduced to a mummy-like corpse 10,000 years ago and has been stuck on a throne, immobile, incapable of communicating and basically acting like a glorified um, lighthouse as he's fed like psychic souls to keep him alive. You know? That is literally the worst horrific image. And if you genuinely think that's your leader, what on earth is wrong with you? You know? And like, you... You either assume that anyone who has put those images together doesn't even understand the story. That's a bit like using an image of Sauron without knowing that Sauron very clearly loses. (laughs) Um, Or they are aware of the irony and they are, you know, they're doing God knows what manner of internet 4chan games of it. You know, and it's really the hall of mirrors of that discourse is very difficult to nail down. What Kieran is getting at is that it's hard to tell if the Emperor's imagery is sincere and missing the point 
or ironic. Though, at some point, is there a difference? This hobby has been a balm to me for the past year and a half, and as we creep towards a world with more in-person interaction, I was excited about, even looking forward to, actually being a part of this community again. Joining the online message boards, meeting new people, maybe even getting a game going at a store again. But as I've dipped my toes back into the hobby 15 years after I left it, it's become apparent that parts of the community have become consumed by hateful political rhetoric. It's left me wondering, do I want to spend more time in a hobby that's harbored far-right political extremists? Do I want to enter a tournament and wonder if the person across the table from me thinks I don't belong here because of my skin color? Or should I retreat to my painting desk and keep this as a purely solitary hobby? AC here. Coming up, John meets the troops fighting for a welcoming Warhammer. Fighting for it with flamethrowers. Sit tight. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. As classically nerdy media, uh, video games, comic books, etc., have become more mainstream, so has Games Workshop been slowly updating its image and its characters. A recent upgrade to its Imperial Guard box set, the regular human soldiers of the 40k universe, now includes several female heads, and other heads with traditionally black hairstyles. And the Sisters of Battle are the female equivalent of the all-male Space Marines, and were recently refreshed with a swath of new miniatures. Obviously, it seems natural to kind of represent the other half of the humankind. And it's just natural that you would kind of evolve that part of it as it hasn't been as... Well, we haven't had that many options previously. This is Torin Gronbeck. I chatted with her on Zoom from her hometown in Jevnaker, Norway. Like Kieran, Torin writes comic books for Marvel. Um, specifically, right now, I'm writing the Sisters of Battle book for the Marvel and Games Workshop collaboration for Warhammer 40k. I personally, uh, I hate when I say like as a woman, but as a woman, I do, I do find it a little problematic to be like, oh, the, I'm going to, if there are female characters, I'm obviously going to play the female characters. But in this case, I just couldn't help myself because they're so cool. I, I know that people do like, oh, they're just nuns with flamethrowers. That kind of... the how you sell it to people, uh, which is kind of fair because you have like the the ferocious dedication that makes them fun. Those miniatures literally are nuns, called the Adaptasoraritas, or Sisters of Battle. And yes, they do have flamethrowers, really big flamethrowers. And I, I think going on saying, okay, we're going to do a, f a female army, but we're going to do it right. And I, th I feel that that's what they did. 
The cover art for the newest Warhammer fantasy game called Age of Sigmar features a female warrior on the cover. It's the first time I can remember a female character given the spotlight on a Warhammer product like this. Newer model kits include more options to represent female soldiers, and official art includes figures with varying skin tones. It's not just Games Workshop doing this. It's also other companies in miniature wargaming. Just this past summer, the miniatures company The Army Painter released a skin tones paint set. Here's Kieran Gillen again. I don't remember as a kid ever being taught to paint a skin tone other than Caucasian. You know, that was just the assumption. And now you pick up an issue of White Dwarf and they're, talk- they're showing all different painting guys to skin tones. How to, you know, just do that, which is such a, you know, obviously that's a, that's a really small thing. I'm not saying that's, that's big, but at the same time, that's fundamental, <laughs> you know. Looking back, it's striking how nearly all humans, elves, and dwarves in older Warhammer books were drawn or painted as fair-skinned. This might not even come up if your army was primarily wearing helmets or made up of rat men or demons. But it speaks volumes that at the time, it didn't seem odd that there were multiple shades of fair to bronze skin tones, but only one dark flesh color in Games Workshop's paint range. Also, nearly all the miniatures had European features. I held out hope for years they would release models with overtly Asian features like mine, but eventually gave up. While there's a greater range of skin tones in the paint colors now, behind the scenes at Games Workshop, things aren't so different from 30 years ago. I picked up the most recent issue of White Dwarf, my first since the mid-2000s. Some of the articles included the name and photo of the author, designer, or staff member showcasing their army. Out of the 10 photos in this issue, 8 were of white men. But I was encouraged to see signs that the company was taking steps towards at least appearing inclusive. Last June, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, Games Workshop tweeted a statement titled, Warhammer is for everyone. One of the great powers of our hobby is its ability to bring people together in common cause, to build bonds and friendships that cross divides. We believe in and support a community united by shared values of mutual kindness and respect. Our fantasy settings are grim and dark, but that is not a reflection of who we are or how we feel the real world should be. We will never accept nor condone any form of prejudice, hatred, or abuse in our company or in the Warhammer hobby. We will continue to diversify the cast of characters we portray through miniatures, art, and storytelling so everyone can find representation and heroes they can relate to. And if you feel the same way, wherever and whoever you are, we're glad you are part of the Warhammer community. If not, you will not be missed. Many of the responses on social media were positive, but not all. A small but vocal number accused the company of playing divisive politics. Games Workshop was accused of pandering to woke politics. Some simply said, all lives matter. A Norway-based YouTuber who goes by the alias Arch started an email campaign to oppose Games Workshop's statement. We don't want your nonsense politics in this. Keep your real-life nonsense out of our hobby, it reads in part. Again, these reactions didn't surprise me. But on the whole, I felt that Games Workshop's message, that Warhammer is for everyone, was encouraging. At the time, many companies were scrambling to make statements of inclusion. But Games Workshop's somehow felt stronger and a little more self-aware to me 
thanks in part to its final line, which might ring a bell. But the universe is a big place, and whatever happens, you will not be missed. And they end up using one of the iconic lines of Warhammer 40k, you will not be missed. Then because, oh yeah, you're gonna die here. <laughs> As Warhammer comic book authors, Kieran and Torin are working in a creative space full of contradictions. The main characters in their comics, Marnius Calgar of the Space Marines and Canonus Viridian of the Sisters of Battle, are both heroes and killing machines. They're equal parts awesome and awful. To their credit, they have both worked hard to make it clear that there are no real heroes in the 40k universe. But what happens when someone misses that part of the message? Nobody understands this disconnect more than Brad Thompson. Yeah, my name is Brad. Um, I am a college professor uh, down in the, the southeast United States. Um, prior to going to school, I was in the Army for U.S. Army for a long time. So, um, you know, especially over the last 20 years, deployed to, you know, South America, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, things like that. As an actual former soldier, he has a unique insight into the world of wargaming. Uh, I got into it in 2001 and I've been playing it, you know, steadily since then, even, you know, while I was even while I was deployed. Um, and so it's been a, this huge part of my life for about the last 20 years. OK, you, you played it while deployed. So there were other people like in your group that, that played or had the yeah. game. Like, how were you able to play that? Like if you were if you were abroad? Uh, the first time um, when I was in when I was in Iraq in 2004, um, I didn't have any miniatures with me, but I um, found a few other guys that were, you know, on the base I was at that had played it. And, uh, you know, that's a great way to, to connect with somebody. I was like, oh, my God, you like this thing. And so then we just made little paper uh, playing pieces and, and we just kind of made it work that way. It's it's just a it's an escape. From it, even though it, you know it, it's kind, of, they're kind of tangentially related to each other, being a war game. Um, but I'm not sure if there, there's there's some kind of glue there between miniature war gaming and a military experience, at least in my experience. But I, I, you know, I don't play historical war games. I just have a mental block on playing a game that mimics wars that actually happened where men real men and women fought and died so i don't play flames of war i don't play any napoleonics or anything like that one of the frequent discussions that comes up is the fact that historically every space marine in 40k is male according to its backstory only teenage boys are compatible with the excruciating bioengineering it takes to transform them into fully fledged marines that hasn't stopped some players from building their own female marine models, often by simply swapping a male head with a female one from another kit. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, this is a long-standing contentious issue within the fandom. My main army is um, right now is the uh, a space marine faction called the Blood Angels. Hey, I'm painting Blood Angels too. And I was on a couple of Blood Angels Facebook groups, and people were starting to post up their um models of women space marines and it's that exact moment when the toxicity in the community comes out you'll get a lot of snide comments and then you'll get guys who think they know what they're talking about 
We'll talk about the differences in male and female physicality, mental states. You know, they'll talk about, you know, men are more have greater upper body strength, greater endurance, you know, greater mental fortitude to handle the rigors of of combat. And I'm like, how much combat have you actually seen in your life? Because I, you know, at the time weighed 150 pounds and your misogyny gets disabused when a 98 pound so, you know, woman soldier throws you over her shoulder with your your and her 75 pound rucksacks and carries your dead weight for a quarter of a mile as part of some, you know, event they throw you into. Um, and that's when I realized I needed to kind of get away from those groups. It wasn't it wasn't worth, you know, seeing the inspiration and the modeling of other other players wasn't worth the vitriol that I would see there. Last year, a friend told me about Tide of Traitors an explicitly leftist community of Warhammer 40,000 fans and players. It's not huge, around 1,500 members all told. Some of the larger Warhammer groups can run into the tens of thousands. This is another example of the mind-boggling range of people who play and love this game. The group's founder, Jeffrey Charles, told me he created it in 2019 after seeing a gradual radicalization of many larger Warhammer communities. That's where I connected with Brad. Here's how he found the group. I had started off trying to avoid a lot of misogyny and racism that I had seen in, in other uh, Facebook groups. And so I, I came across this group called Feminist 40K. Um, and that's where this was at a time when I was trying to self-educate on feminism. And I was delighted to see uh, that there was this subgroup within my community, my broader global community um about that and then i found tide of traders which was a little bit more broad um left-leaning anti-fascist kind of warhammer group that was dedicated towards um avoiding some of the the toxicity especially toxic masculinity misogyny racism that's that's in there um and and kind of a kind of a collective of players you know to be a bit of a safe haven on the internet Tide of Traitors also has its own impassioned debates, but most of the time people will do what people usually do in these groups, ask for painting advice, show off their freshly completed models, or post pictures of their pets. The vast, vast majority of the community is just wonderful people who want to buy toy soldiers and, and play games, you know, and it's it's such an enriching hobby. I mean, it's it's helped me have an artistic outlet and cope with the experiences that I've had and connect with new friends and, and do great things. I absolutely love this hobby. And I would encourage all of your listeners to come be a part of it. Take a look at it and come be a part of it, please. You know, the more people that we get into the hobby, the more games I get to play, you know, I love it so much. And I don't want to paint a negative picture of the hobby as a whole and the community as a whole. It's been reassuring to know that there are safe spaces to enjoy the hobby these days, and after talking to Kieran and Torin, it feels like the lore is in good hands. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, Warhammer was both a solitary and a social activity for me. I painted miniatures for hours on end, alone in my room. But I also hung out with my small group of Warhammer nerd friends in my uncle's comic book store. 
Since the pandemic, I've been back to painting, but I haven't revisited in-person gaming. I'm not really sure how I would do that, or if I even want to. So I asked everybody for their advice. I think the 40K or the Warhammer community in general, it is a great place to be and they're very much my people. If I, if I hear that someone is into Warhammer, I will most likely enjoy their company. But going down into the shops and not knowing anyone and, and, and trying to kind of get acquainted could be extremely terrifying. Put yourself out there, right? You could, you could pick up pretty quickly on who is worth hanging out with and who's not. And embrace that like three to five people and make them not just, you know, don't just be players opposite one another, like be friends with them. I play with my friends, they come around my house. It's a sort of chill thing we do with people. And that's the, that is the kind of the weird thing about Warhammer is that it's not just a game. They're people in turn internally at one would describe it as the hobby in quotation marks as in it's meant to be about a variety of things together and people experience it in different ways it's kind of like that kind of gentle social side social side and you being able to find your own warhammer and find what you're comfortable with that's kind of the magic for it finding my own warhammer that sounds like good advice For the past year, I had felt comfortable keeping the hobby at the painting table and dipping into some online discussions. But then I found a video on a YouTube channel called Midwinter Minis that I usually watch for painting tutorials. In this video, we're going to cover the basics of how to play Warhammer 40,000 9th edition. Whether you've just discovered the hobby... This video was a tutorial about how to play Warhammer 40,000 using the most recent version of the rules. You're watching Midwinter Minis. My name's Guy. And to help you learn the rules, we're going to play a small practice game. I'll be playing as the Orcs, a savage race of aliens that love charging in and smashing stuff up. Joining me is my partner Penny. Hello everyone, I'll be guys... As I watched, memories of shuffling models around a table and rolling handfuls of dice came back. It was a hit of nostalgia, but several rules were slightly different than when I had last played over a decade ago. So I reached out to a real three-dimensional friend, to play in real time. My old friend, Scott. It has been, how, okay, how long has it been since the last time you played a full game of this? The last time we played each other was definitely high school. Yeah. Right. Was in 2004, 2005. Was it like we commandeered the small library in my apartment building for the battle. Scott's even more into this than I am. He brought the dice, tape measures, cardboard buildings, and a vinyl playmat needed to play the game. As we prepared to face off, I was hit by how satisfying it is to plunk down a fully painted army of 20 or more little soldiers onto the board. We were building our own dynamic diorama that keeping the same models on a shelf just can't replicate. While many parts of the game were instantly familiar, it quickly became apparent that it had become way more complex since I last played. Okay, so I guess, um, yeah, we need to remember how to play the game. Yeah, I mean, that's why I got the rule book. Yeah. <laughs> Just, uh, I, was, I was doing some studying last night, which felt very weird. There was no command phase when we were playing. Uh, I mean, there's a, like there's a charge phase and a fight phase, yes. which are separate. Which, like, logistically, what is the point? I don't even know what the difference means. Scott was always the better player, so it wasn't too long before his strike force of space marines wiped out my own. 
And my near legendary bad luck with dice reared its head again. <laughs> That's fine. No trees. Despite suffering a humbling loss, I had a great time. I think I'm on the way to carving out my little corner of the galaxy that is this hobby. And strangely, a big part of it involves the same people I played with nearly two decades ago. We've made preliminary pledges to meet up and get some games in when the local hobby stores reopen their in-person gaming sections. I also have a few new allies when it comes to navigating the fandom's fractured community online. I've been back at my solitary painting table lately, but now it comes with a new sense of anticipation for new games and new stories with friends, old and new. That Doc was produced by Jonathan Orr. It was edited by Allison Cook and me, A.C. Rowe. To see photos of John's collection and close-ups of his tiny Warhammer figurines, head to our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash docprojectcbc. If you enjoyed today's story and have a Warhammering friend in your life, please take this moment to send it to them. I will be sending this story to the Warhammerers in my life, Elliot and Ray, whose house is part Martha Stewart cooking show and part Warhammer shrine. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, Sherry O'KK, and me. Special thanks this week to Chris Howden of As It Happens, our very unofficial voice of Warhammer 40K. Althea Manassen is our digital producer, this week with Jonathan Orr. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and I'm AC Rowe. And with a slight tweak of the lore... You will be missed. Yeah, that's nice. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.